The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Here we are today, still celebrating. And still the most recognized symbol in humanity is the cross. Hi and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff preaches from Matthew chapter 26 in his message, Come to the Table. First, he shares about the founding fathers of the world's religions and how similar they are. You could go on and on with this with every major religious leader. And then you come to Jesus Christ. What do you have? When he dies, he's abandoned by his disciples. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles on all campuses, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, I'll get to verse 26 just in a moment while you're turning there. Have you ever stopped to think about the deaths of the founders of the major religions are very, very similar in type? In other words, Moses uh, lived to be 120 years old, full of years, strong as ever. Uh, He was the undisputed leader of Israel. But he dies when? Just as he leaves the people of Israel on the outskirts of the promised land. But he lived a full and powerful life. Buddha, according to their sacred text, dies at the age of 80. Uh, Surrounded by all of his disciples and his friends and his followers, he dies in peaceful serenity, uh, described as a complete success by his disciples. Confucius Uh, originally kicked out of his hometown, but passes away in his hometown as he's welcomed back and receives honor, dies at the age of uh, 72. And again, all of his followers and disciples gathered all around him who will continue his work long after he's dead. And then you got Muhammad, founder of Islam, dies in his 60s. He was the first political ruler to really unite the Arabs. So that's an amazing feat in and of itself. Uh, dies in the arms of his wife, at least one of them. And uh, you could go on and on with this with every major religious leader. And then you come to Jesus Christ. What do you have? Dies at the age of 33. 33. Only had about three and a half years of ministry at the most. When he dies, he's abandoned by his disciples. And if you believe the sacred text, God himself dies a shameless death, the worst way you could possibly die. It's not peaceful, not in serenity. In fact, most would have called him a failure. Dies at the hands of the Roman oppressors, the power of the day. And crucifixion was the worst possible way you could die. It was shameful. They would strip you down completely naked, no matter what you see in the movies. And people would watch you die inch by inch very slowly as the life would go out of you. So at least to some degree, you can understand why people would say that other religions are somewhat successful. The founders 
lived a long life, prosperous life, gained a lot of followers, taught uh, for many, many years. Their disciples would carry on their works long after they're gone. They would teach these truths about spirituality. They would appeal in their message to the masses. They would give a formula for blessing and success. So that one of the great questions of history is simply this. Why would anybody look at the life Jesus lived? He dies penniless, a shameful death, naked and abandoned by his disciples, his followers, his friends, and by God himself. Why would anyone look at that and say, that is the message for me right there. That's what I'm after. I want to live a short life and die a shameful death. I want to follow that dude. It's unbelievable, really. It makes no sense. No one would look at the cross at first glance and say, that's the badge of honor. That is the way of peace right there. That's the the road to future blessing. That's what I want to do. And yet the early Christians gloried in the cross and the symbol. It became the foundation, the central tenet of their faith. As a matter of fact, you know the cross, Cicero talked about the cross. It's a four-letter word, crux. And it is literally a four-letter word. It was a cuss word, a slain word. In the days of Jesus. So think of a four-letter word. Don't say it out loud. But think of it. I know I shouldn't ask you to do that. because. <clears throat> but think of this. Think, of, think that you're going to start a church. And you name your church after this four-letter word. So the first church of blankety-blank. Who would come? Well, we are in California. So some people would come. But in most places, people would never show up to a church like that. This is a shameless, hostile, weak, defeated way to die. Matter of fact, Galatians 3.13 says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. In other words, if if you're crucified, it's because man has abandoned you. God himself has abandoned you and you are the worst of the worst. So who looks at that? Think about it. Who looks at that and says, wow, that's, that's what I want to do right there. That's the way I want to live. That's the dude I want to follow. I'm in. It's unbelievable. The fact of the crucifixion repels. But once Jesus explained it to the disciples in the upper room, it started a movement. It became unbelievably believable. The crucifixion in and of itself, the shameless way Jesus died would repel. But when Jesus explains it and puts everything together and how God had been working in history, it changes the world, turns them upside down in a rather counterintuitive way Nevertheless, here we are today, still celebrating, and still the most recognized symbol in humanity is the cross. Now, had Jesus not raised from the dead, I don't believe we'd ever be having this discussion. I know we wouldn't, because the disciples didn't get it as long as he was living. It was only after the resurrection that they went back to the upper room and started asking questions about what Jesus meant. The upper room was where Jesus took the disciples And help them connect the dots in in the things that he began to say in such a way in a language they could understand with which they would have been familiar and then the light was turned on. The Bible says, actually in John 14, Jesus was speaking to the disciples before his death and he says, all this I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, Most of you are familiar that I had a bike accident not too long ago and I broke both my arms. The the worst thing about that accident is I lost an hour of my life. I don't know how it happened and I don't know what happened. One moment I'm riding my bike, an hour later I'm at the San Bernardino head trauma unit and they're pumping me with morphine. What happened? I don't know and it's driven me crazy, which is a short trip. 
But what happened there for that one hour? And little by little, I've been having dreams. And, a, and every dream reveals a little bit more about the accident. It's cool. Uh, I still don't know exactly why, but I think it has something to do with me dodging a little squirrel. So doesn't that make you feel good about your pastor? That he saved the life of the squirrel, laid his life down. Doesn't that... I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know this, that after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit came into the life of the disciples and helped them recall everything that Christ had taught them. They were able to put it together. And in the upper room, here's what happens. And I want you to walk away with this. So I don't ask you to write things down that often, but I'm asking you to write them. At Etiwanda, at Long Hill, right here, if you just write these things down. Because in the upper room, Jesus is going to communicate four things about the cross that is going to change these disciples' lives forever. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I hope you know these four things. And we're going to repeat them, okay? I'm going to put them on the screen for you. One, the cross was promised. Can you say that? The cross was promised. Number two, the cross is perpetual. The cross is, perpetual. The cross is precise. The cross is precise. And the cross must become personal. So what we're saying, number one, the cross was promised, that when Jesus died on the cross, the only explanation for why it took the Gentiles and the Jews and then the Romans and the known world by storm is because it must have been rooted in history. They must have seen it coming. It had been promised. When Jesus died on the cross, in other words, God wasn't up in heaven saying, wow, I didn't see that coming. He saw it coming. In fact, it was ordained in Matthew 26. Look at verse 19 in the text. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. What's the Passover and why does it matter? It matters because Jesus in the upper room is going to connect what he's about to do back to something they've been celebrating since the book of Genesis. It's the story of the Lamb. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Preaching from Matthew chapter 26, Pastor Jeff talks about the crucifixion of Christ and the meaning of the cross in Come to the Table. Story of the Lamb that starts with Abraham and then moves subtly into the Exodus. Remember what happened? The children of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians and they cried out to God and God sends them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And then plagues began to descend upon Egypt to show Pharaoh how powerful Moses God really is. And here's the climactic point of that Exodus. In Exodus 12, 12, on that same night, this is God talking now, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Now, isn't this a little intimidating? The destroyer? I mean, that's a pretty intimidating name. I mean, there's Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. This is the destroyer. And the first question is, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who let him out of the cage? And according to this text, He's a messenger of God, that he's come down, that God is sending down a temporary judgment in the Exodus. Now, stay with me. This is important that you, I'm going to talk slower because we all have to get this. Who is the destroyer? God is saying in the Exodus that this last plague is going to take the lives of the firstborn. The destroyer is going to come down and this destroyer is temporary. Uh, in the sense that it's 
just going to be for a season, for a short while, and it's preliminary. It's a foreshadowing of the day of judgment that will come at the end of time. I'm going to send down to the destroyer in one place, at one time, the eternal divine judgment day type of justice is going to come down to show you what will one day take place. This, so this isn't just the, the mere disintegration of life that happens when we violate the law of God. Like if you don't forgive someone, if you refuse to forgive someone, a bitterness sets into your life and then a cancer starts to grow and over time you just become a, just a wicked person. That's the, that's the law of reaping and sowing. It's the law of the universe that God has put together. That's not what this is. This is the ultimate judgment that will someday come. Now we get a foreshadowing of it. So that God is, is communicating that he is long-suffering, but one day justice is going to roll. And here's the point of the story. When it rolls, it rolls over everyone. No one is immune to it. God says, I'm going to release the destroyer of their most... The most powerful military that the world has seen up until this time is going to be laid waste by this power that I will send. And there's only one way to escape it. Now, those of you who have been in church for a long, long time, only one way to escape the destroyer. And it's not by being a Hebrew, not by being an Egyptian. It's not about religion and irreligion. It's not about good people and bad people. No, when the destroyer comes, he is no respecter of persons. Everyone gets it. <laughs> this is the most non-discriminatory thing you're ever going to read in Scripture. The Bible says that the way we live is wreaking havoc on the creation of God. And that one day he's going to descend and send us the destroyer. Now, here's, here, let's say it again. What is the only way to, if you know anything about the Exodus story, what is the only way, what is going to help you escape the judgment of the destroyer? Whether you're Egyptian or whether you're Hebrew, you're going to do what? That's right, it's going to be a little lamb. So the most powerful force that we could ever possibly know is going to be defeated by the weakest little quadruped, a woolly little lamb. And God says, I want you to take that weakest and mildest of creatures, and I want you to slay him, and I want you to experience the Passover feast so you'll have unleavened bread and the four cups of wine, and then the lamb will be on the table and I want you to take the blood of that lamb that was slain and I want you to put it over the doorpost. And if it's over the doorpost, the destroyer will pass over you. Thus, you'll be saved and spared. Now, what's God doing here? This is a little whacked out to a lot of people. What's God up to? Blood and lamb. I mean, come on. Well, he's writing a narrative. He's in a storytelling culture. God is communicating to the people in a way that that culture and people could have understood clearly. And it started way before, didn't it? Didn't it start way before this exodus? In Genesis 22, when God said to Abraham, take your son, the one that you love, the apple of your eye, the thrill of your heart, the one through whom all the promises are gonna come, take Isaac up on top of the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Have you ever looked carefully at that story? What does Abraham do? Modern people, when they hear this story, they think, man, Abraham must have thought God was monstrous, unkind, uncouth, and unexcusable. And if that's what you think about the Abraham story, it's because you are locked into your own cultural biases. If God wanted to communicate to us today something, it probably wouldn't be through the shedding of the blood of a lamb. But Abraham's culture, remember what we said, operated by the theme of primogeniture, they had begun to put all their faith and hope and trust in the firstborn son. That's why Abraham wanted a firstborn son, someone to 
expand his territory and his family name and continue on the traditions. That's why women became so depressed when they were buried and could not have a firstborn son. Because it was not only not having a child, it was the family name couldn't prosper. So in that context, Abraham and the people of Abraham's day started to put all their faith and hope and trust for the future in having a son. So God sends into that culture a direct message. He says, I want you to recognize that your hope and your faith and your trust is not in your firstborn son, it's in me. And to make sure you understand that, I want you to redeem the life of your firstborn son with a lamb, an unblemished lamb. That way, every time you engage in this sacrifice, you'll remember, wait a minute, it's not the firstborn son where my hope is, it's in God, ultimately. My hope, my salvation, my future, it's me. Now, let's, let's stop there just for a second, okay, and catch up. What would God do today? Think about it. So, so here's what God does. God says, okay, I've given you this gift of the firstborn son, and now you've started to worship him. He's like an idol. You think all your hope, faith, and trust is in him. So in order to make sure you don't mess that up, I'm going to have you offer a lamb, a sacrifice a lamb, to redeem that son back to me. Abraham knows God has no intention of slaying his son. He knows God has the right to, because what God owns, God can do whatever he wants to with. But he knows the character of God. What If God came today and wanted to help you understand that your faith, your trust, and your hope is in something other than God, what would he do in this culture? Money. He would come to you and he'd say, you know what? Just to make sure that you know that everything comes from me, I need you to give me a tithe. I need you to give me the first fruit so that every time you do that, you recognize that you may have all these resources, but ultimately they all come from God. To make sure you don't start worshiping money and think that how much money's in your bank is your ultimate hope and security and safety. Think about it. When God goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain. What does Abraham do? He doesn't even blink. He takes it in stride, right? It, now, if God would have said, Abraham, go in and kill your wife, Sarah, Abraham would have thought, whoa, wait a minute, I must have had too much wine last night. Wait, that God, what, this is a hallucination. God would never ask me to do that. Something that's in violation or in variance to his will. But in this case, when God asked him to take Isaac upon the mountain, Abraham gathers the wood and the resources, takes his son, he starts walking up the hill. He knew God's calling in the debt. He knew that God had the right to call in the debt. Abraham would have struggled. But you don't find anywhere in the text where he said, God, how can you be so unjust? Because he knows that everything ultimately comes from God, even the firstborn. And in Genesis chapter 8, 22, if you really want a good understanding of this, Isaac stops his father and says, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And basically Abraham's response is, God will provide a little lamb so that my little lamb will not have to die. He knew. He knew. So now when we come to the Exodus story, the story of the lamb continues. And so God says to his people, if you want to be saved ultimately from the destroyer, take a little lamb. Here we go again. Unblemished lamb. Sacrifice the lamb. Put the blood over the doorpost. Eat the lamb. Have a meal. Celebrate. Because I'm claiming the firstborn again. It's substitutionary sacrifice that God is writing into the narrative of the story of the Hebrews. So that in every single home, when they would have had the Passover, 
Every firstborn son around the table would have said, the only reason I'm not dead is because that thing is. The only reason I'm still here, still alive, is because that lamb has, that lamb has died in my place. The lamb got what I deserved. The lamb was a substitution for the son. Pays the debt that the son owes. Now, let's stop again. This is so offensive in the West. When I talk to people about the Passover and about the lamb, isn't it amazing that we're supposed to be so tolerant, but we are so culturally narrow. We think that every culture ought to operate like ours. The real issue here is that no matter how many ways God offers to be saved, you're still going to want one more. The one that you can control. And so God starts this narrative all the way back in the Old Testament, right on up to the time of Jesus. And then Jesus goes into the upper room to celebrate the Passover with the disciples. And let me pick it up in verse 26. It says, while they were eating, now this is the Passover meal, celebrating what once had happened, once it occurred. Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So... Jesus celebrates the Passover feast with the disciples in the upper room. He celebrates the event in Exodus with them when the destroyer passed over them and they were saved by the blood of the lamb. And as he does it, he is wanting to make a connection between the original Passover that the Hebrews have been celebrating for hundreds of years to this last Passover meal. And in making the connection, he wants them to be able to recall soon the power of the cross. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And that's all we have time for. But come to the table and our exploration of the cross continues next time. So please join us then. For more from Pastor Jeff, you can head to vision.org.au and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.